Well, happy Resurrection Sunday to you again. I'm still looking forward to start preaching through the epistle of James. We've been delayed a bit for various reasons, kind of like having a baby. He's doing well. And we're going to be delayed another week as I'd like to reserve Easter Sunday for a special message. I want to take you somewhere this morning that you've probably never been. I want to set before you something you've probably never considered, and that is the justification of God. The justification of God. I know most people want something probably light and fluffy at church on Easter. That's reflected in our culture where the holiday of Easter is literally light and fluffy. It's about eggs and bunnies. Culturally, Easter no longer has any associations with the empty tomb because that will force us to think about a crucified Savior and that's going to force us to think about our sins and our guilt. People want to do that. That's way too heavy, too serious. Let's just stick with the, the bunnies and the eggs. The problem with that, though, is you never grow, you're, you're never challenged, you're never sanctified. But life isn't always light and fluffy, and sometimes you need the deeper truths of Scripture to take your faith deeper. That's something I want to present to you this morning. A, a deep topic, the concept of the justification of God. Now, you're probably wondering what I even mean by that. I want you to think about injustice. Have you ever suffered a great injustice? Now, April 1992... I was just nine years old, but I distinctly remember watching the L.A. riots unfold on TV. Couldn't quite see them from our house, but I could smell the smoke from where we lived. These were the largest riots in our nation's history, and they were sparked by the acquittal of four LAPD officers in the beating of Rodney King, as I'm sure you all remember. It wasn't the first time the LAPD used excessive force, but it was the first time it was caught on tape, and everyone could see that these officers were guilty. But when all four of them went free and got off, it was a huge injustice. Now, while we can never condone rioting, I wonder how you would respond in the face of injustice. What if a criminal burned down your house and got off on a technicality? Or a drunk driver killed a loved one but walked free? How would you respond? You too would cry out for justice. We firmly believe the guilty should be held accountable. Justice must be served. There are a few things worse than a lack of justice in the land. Now, that being said, have you ever wondered, what if God was not just? Wouldn't that be really the most terrifying and and fearful thing? What if God himself could not be counted on to uphold justice in the end? Now, thankfully, we know that's not the case, but I bring it up to make you wonder and think about salvation. Because isn't that what God does in salvation? In other words, when God saves someone, isn't he letting the guilty go free? He's acquitting someone who's guilty. You have people guilty of serious spiritual crimes against God, idolatry, immorality, adultery, murder. Yet God completely forgives some such people and he accepts them into heaven. That should make you wonder, like, how can that be? How is that fair? Others are judged. Others are sentenced to hell for their sins before God. They receive pure justice. So how can God just let some people go? Is God unjust for quitting the guilty? This question is more significant than you may think. You might say, like, well, you know, the people in heaven, they ask for God's forgiveness. And so that's why they're, they're forgiven. Really? 
So if you have two murderers before a judge, and one of them says, you know, judge, I'm really sorry for what I did. Would you just please forgive me and, and let me go? I promise I'll never do it again. And the judge lets him go, but the other, he punishes. Would, would that be okay with you? No, that, that would still be unjust. We would say justice must be served. It's not enough for a guilty person to simply say sorry to God. If someone has done wrong, they should be punished. That is justice. And since scripture says that God is perfectly just, then our question remains, how can God just forgive people, let them go? It's a question I think we take for granted. How can God justly forgive people? Notice, not just forgive, how can he justly forgive? How can he forgive people yet still be righteous? Just let their sins go? At first, I want to point out, all world religions answer this question the same way. All religions, they acknowledge we have some sort of universal problem. We're guilty before God. We need his forgiveness to be accepted by him. But all religions teach you can obtain this forgiveness by your merit. Just, just work for it. You can get there. Islam, for example, teaches that if you go on a, a hajj or a pilgrimage to Mecca, when you return, you'll be free from all your sins as if you were a newborn baby. Or Hinduism teaches that purification comes by chanting the holy names of God at least 108 times a day. That's where the Hare Krishna chant came from. And Catholicism teaches that you need only to perform some various deeds of penance, like confession and prayer and almsgiving. And if you don't finish in this life, don't worry. You just go to purgatory for however many thousands of years and finish paying off your debt. Then God will accept you. See, world religions, they use different terms, but they all basically teach the same thing, that we've sinned, but you can make up for it. Just do some good things, be good do good works, some religious deeds. You will earn God's forgiveness and acceptance. And honestly, it's not that hard. It's very doable in these religions to be accepted by God. Just just try hard and, and you'll be good to go, which sounds like something man would make up. But understand how truly set apart and unique biblical Christianity is, which I believe speaks to its truthfulness. Christianity has a high view of sin, which means it's a big deal. This is a universal problem. It's led to the universal condemnation of mankind. You may not be a murderer or an adulterer, but to God, even anger and lust are mortal offenses. This is because Christianity also has a high view of God. He is absolutely holy, morally perfect. He has no tolerance for sin, and he demands absolute perfection if you are to be accepted in his presence. And with such a standard, it's no wonder that scripture teaches we all fall short. No one, no one meets that standard. We, we don't even come close. All deserve judgment because we've all sinned and fallen far short of perfect righteousness. But it's not all bad news, though, because Christianity also teaches that salvation is possible, forgiveness is possible, acceptance is by God is possible. How? Well, it's not by your own doing. Christianity is unique in teaching the impossibility of salvation on your own. You can't do anything. Your works are not enough. Your merit is not enough. Being religious, not going to make up for any of your sins or reconcile you to God. I just hope you pause and, and appreciate how radical that is 
and, and the marketplace of worldviews, there's nothing like that. This is completely unlike all the other world religions. Instead, salvation comes how? Well, by God's own grace. It's a free gift. He just, just gives it to you. He gives you salvation. It's unearned. You didn't do anything. It's undeserved. You didn't merit this. But God will save you from his own judgment. It's like a chalkboard. God can pick up the eraser, just wipe away the whole record of your sin debt and make you clean. You, you might deserve eternal death, but he just gives you eternal life. That sounds pretty good. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And note the contrast between wages and a free gift. Sin, sin merits death, but salvation is just a free gift. It's a gift to be received. And it's received by faith in Christ, the Savior. You believe in him, you trust in him, and God will grant you this gift of life. Again, this teaching of salvation by grace alone, it's, it's radical. It's unlike anything in, in any other worldview. But it is open to one objection. Namely that it's not fair. That's not fair. I remember talking to a young Muslim back when I was a college pastor at my previous church, and this was his objection to Christianity. Like, that's not fair. How can God just forgive people who are guilty? That's not just You have two people. They're equally guilty of sin before God. They're both deserving of divine judgment. But one of them believes in God and accepts Jesus. So he's just forgiven of everything and he's let go. He gets to go to heaven. The other one doesn't. So he's held accountable for all the same sins. How is that fair? How is that just? And so we're back to that question again. How can the guilty be acquitted? We're all guilty. How can God forgive anyone justly to be sure scripture says it is terribly wrong to let the guilty go free proverbs 17:15 says the one who justifies or acquits the wicked is an abomination before the lord but isn't that what god himself is doing when he forgives people who believe in jesus he's acquitting the wicked how can he do that exodus 34:7 says god will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. But the same verse says he also forgives sin. That is meant to create some tension in your mind, thinking like, wait, how can those both be true? kind of sounds like an either or. If God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, how can he forgive anyone? So this, I think we've said enough here, this is the fundamental question I want us to answer this morning. It is a deeper question, but it's worth it. How can God justly forgive? How can God forgive people yet still be righteous? By answering this question from Scripture, we're going to arrive at a deeper understanding of the forgiveness that flows from the fountain at Calvary. It's going to give us a better appreciation for the life-giving death of Jesus. And even the true meaning of Easter, by the way, this is not necessarily going to be light and fluffy, but usually nothing worthwhile is. And maybe you've come today, not even as a Christian, just an inquisitive visitor, and we welcome you. This is your chance to peer right into the very heart of the Christian faith and find out what makes it so different from every other religion in the world. At the very heart is salvation by God's grace alone. 
Salvation is not a work to be accomplished. It's a gift to be received. But if that's true, how can the guilty just go free? We have to answer this question. How can God justly forgive? We're going to find our answer this morning from the book of Romans. So take a Bible, turn to Romans 1, look at many verses. So even grab a pew Bible and and make your way to Romans 1, if you will. This question is ripe in the mind of Paul. He aims to uphold the righteousness of God and justifying wicked sinners. How can God acquit the guilty yet still be perfectly righteous? We're going to find out in Romans. I'll let you keep turning, but I'm going to start by reading Romans 1, 16 and 17. There Paul says, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Romans is a book of righteousness. It's all about the righteousness of God and how we too can be made righteous. These verses are really the the thesis to the book of Romans. And, And this is why... Paul is not ashamed of this gospel message. Somehow, in the good news of Christ Jesus, God both proves his own righteousness and also provides us with the righteousness we need to be accepted by him. How does God do this in the gospel? Well, Paul doesn't tell us right away. Instead, first, he's going to spend some time making sure that we really appreciate the answer when he gives it. In other words, he's going to spend a few chapters first convicting us that we're all unrighteous and we desperately need this righteousness from him. That's Romans 2 and 3 largely. You know, since we live relatively close to a nuclear power plant, at least for now, the city gives out for free these potassium iodide tablets. These tablets prevent the absorption of radioactive iodine by the thyroid a thyroid gland, rather, and they're given out for free. I got some, but nobody gets them. <laughs> no one goes and gets these tablets. They don't sense the need. But let's say there really was a radiation leak, and you go to your neighbor's house, you have a, a Geiger counter, and you prove to them, like, there, there's a radiation leak. You're in danger. And after you show this to them, well, then they're going to run by themselves, and they're going to get some of these free tablets. And in that time, they're going to be very thankful that they're for free. They don't cost a million dollars. Just just take them. And so Paul, he's first showing us that we've all already been exposed to a lethal dose of sin. And it's like radiation. We're still alive, but it's already killed us. Spiritually speaking, it's just a matter of time before we perish forever. Most people are self-deceived. They think they're, they're good people, that God would never judge them. But a person must come to terms with the fact that before God, they are guilty. And so Paul begins just by convicting all of us of this guilt. He starts with the person who just straight up doubts God and denies God. So chapter 1, look next at verse 18. He says right after this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. In unrighteousness. All people know God 
His existence is imprinted deep in their souls. Like a potter forming a clay pot, the fingerprints of God have been left behind in our very makeup at a deep level. But many suppress the truth of God in, in what? In unrighteousness. Instead of giving God the the glory and the honor he is due, what do they do? They choose to live for the glory of self. Look at verse 21. It says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. And see the problem here. They did not honor God or give him thanks, but they exchanged his glory really for nothing. And that's really what all sin is. It's an offense against God's glory. God made everything, and in supreme wisdom, his ways are best. But when you sin, you realize what you're basically saying is, no, I don't think so. I think my ways are better. I think my worth is better. I think my glory is better. This is the essence of unrighteousness, and such an exchange of God's glory leads to a whole host of other sins. Think of verse 29. This is what the display of our unrighteousness looks like. Verse 29. He says, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And he goes on. You know, you read a list like this, maybe your eye gravitates to the big ones like, like murder. And most think, you know, I'm not that bad. I'm not, I'm not a murderer. And that may be true, but you realize this list defines sin and depravity before God. And, and it includes even things like, like greed. Have you ever been greedy or covetous or how about envious? Ever had strife? Ever ever been in a family conflict? That's strife. That leads to malice. Have you ever wished harm upon another? And Christ himself equated anger with murder in your heart. So how good are you? You read a list like this and it, it describes all of us. No one passes this test. Who on earth is blameless if this is the standard of righteousness. Some people may have gone off the deep end, but we're all swimming in the pool of sin before God. Paul is not done, though, in in convicting us of our sin. Before he tells us the good news, next in chapter 2, after showing how the godless pagan is guilty before God, he goes on to show how even the religious person, even the religious moralist is guilty. Before God. Those who who believe in God, they seek to do good. They try and keep his laws. But they're still guilty sinners. And don't get me wrong, it's it's a good thing to seek to live according to God's ways. But don't think that makes you righteous. Don't think that justifies you before God. That's self-righteousness. Being a religious person, that's not enough to justify you. That's because no one can keep, perfectly keep, God's standard. And so before you judge that that wicked pagan, you need to remember that 
you too violate God's will all the time. And so, for example, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that in which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. It's kind of starting to sound like we're all guilty of sin before God. After this, Paul goes on to talk about Israel, the nation of Israel. They received a great honor in possessing God's law, but, but keep in mind, that law did not save them. They tried to keep it, but in the end, they fell short too. We all do, and that's because the, the law cannot justify. We're unrighteous by nature, so rule-keeping can't make you right with God. And as a side note, have you ever fallen into that trap where you just feel like your right relationship with God is, is dependent on you keeping the rules? Hey, there, there, are, there, there are rules we aim to keep to seek to live according to God's will, but that's not the basis of your relationship with him. I, I hope not, because then no one would ever be right with God if it were up to us to, to keep his word. We all violate. Now into chapter 3, Paul makes the point that the Jews, again, they had a great advantage in having God's law, but if they, if they fell away in unbelief and unrighteousness, then they too would be judged. And that's exactly what happened. Look at a, a very important verse, chapter 3, verse 5. He says, but if our our unrighteousness, talking about national Israel, he says, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I want you to key in and remember this phrase here, that the demonstration of God's righteousness. You see, God will vindicate his righteousness. He will show his own perfect righteousness. And one of the ways he does this is by pouring out his wrath. As God judges those who have sinned and rebelled against him, those who have despised his glory, what's he doing? He's proving himself righteous. And in reality, that the fate of unbelieving Israel really should be the fate of all of us because we've all sinned. And so Paul basically concludes his train of thought in verse 9, where he goes on to say, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. Not even one. Now, I know for a lot of you, you've heard this before, this is all review, but I hope you, you just stop and appreciate the point that Paul has made so far that we all are guilty. Seriously guilty before God because of all of our own sin and, and rebellion. Whether you're, you're that godless pagan or the religious person, there are none truly righteous before him. All of us at various times have exchanged his glory and God must judge to uphold his glory. He, he must demonstrate his righteousness that he can't just let sin go. And this sounds like bad news for us 
and it is. But, but again, now that you, I hope, appreciate bad news, now Paul brings in the good news with what many have called the, the most glorious paragraph in the Bible. Here, Paul introduces the essence of the gospel, which is the good news of Christ Jesus. The bad news is we're guilty. We cannot be saved by keeping the law or following the rules or being a good person. We can't justify ourselves. We can't make ourselves right with God. We're lost. But we can be saved. We can be justified. We can be made right before him. How? Verse 21. 21 through 24. Romans 3, 21. He says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Here we we learn, we start to learn about the righteousness of God, which means the righteousness that comes from God and is given to us. This righteousness, he says, it's been manifested, it's been revealed in Christ Jesus. And in Christ, it's been made available to you by faith. And remember, it's not just for Jews, this is for Gentiles too, where all have sinned, but remember, there's no distinction. All can be justified, and they can be made right with God as a gift. You see that, verse 24? Justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. I hope you get all this, although I'm being brief. And again, I would, I would already just have you pause and, and appreciate this good news, that it is possible you can be justified, you can be made right with God, as a gift by his grace. Just, just think of all your sins. Not, not the other person in the room, just yours. All your shame, all your guilt, all, all that you have done wrong in life. Does your conscience still convict you? It should because you're guilty and so am I. So what will you do when God will judge the secrets of men in Christ Jesus? Romans 2.16 says. On that day we all would fall. You may be able to hide your sins from others in this life, but not from God. But, but again, there's, there's good news that you can be justified. You can be fully forgiven, reconciled to God, made right, accepted. All of your guilt, all of it can be washed away. You're, you can become not guilty. You go free. How? By God's grace. As a free gift, he can wipe away your slate. And you receive this gift through faith in Christ. You, you turn away from your sins in repentance. You turn to Christ, confessing him as Lord, Savior, your, your treasure, in complete trust. Faith is where you no longer exchange God's glory, but you come to, to see God's glory in the face of Christ. And so you, you follow him now. You offer up your life to him and you follow him. And by this, God will give you the gift of salvation. He will make you right with him. And so like I said, just first stop and appreciate this. In Christ, we have full forgiveness. That, that's something that should, for those who have it, make you rejoice. 
It's like Christ said to, to this woman. She was most likely an ex-harlot, but she came in and showed Christ's devotion and love. And Christ said of her, those who have been forgiven of much love much. And if you're here this morning and you know Christ by faith, then you know, especially, you have been forgiven of much. You should love much. Love God, love others, follow him. Now I could say we could, we could stop right here in a manner of speaking. The truths we've already surveyed in Romans, they're sufficient for us to, to leave with a deeper worship of God. But at the same time, we're actually now fully prepared to, to circle back and answer that the main question we were trying to answer. Namely, how is this fair? I mean, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it, it is good news. But how can God do this? How can he just forgive people? I like the sound of it. I like the sound of just total forgiveness for free. I need that. You need that. That sounds good. But at the same time, how can God let truly guilty people just go free? Well, the answer comes now in the next two verses, verses 25 and 26. Look there now, Romans 3, 25. Speaking of Christ, It says, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. So that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, I'm going to explain that to you. Here we have an explicit statement on the purpose for which God sent Jesus to die. Why did God send Jesus? This verse tells us it was to demonstrate his righteousness. And remember that concept. We saw it before. We have it again, this concept, the demonstration of God's righteousness. Demonstrate means to to show forth to manifest, to declare. The word was used of of actually pointing your finger at something. And so when Christ was hanging on the cross, God was pointing something out to to the world. What was he pointing out? His own righteousness. This is one of the great problems the cross was intended to solve. And so what Paul is saying is, if Jesus did not come and die and yet people are still accepted by God, then God would be unrighteous. If Jesus didn't die, if God just sweeps our sins under the rug and and looks the other way, and and, and yet still accepts people into heaven, God would be unjust. But God does not do this. Instead, somehow, we'll get there, through Jesus, God was justifying himself. He was demonstrating his righteousness in, in forgiving all these guilty people. He was doing something that was right. Again, verse 25, he says, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. This statement is talking about the past, namely Old Testament believers. God was forbearing with them and long-suffering as he suspended his wrath. God could have just judged everyone instantly when they sinned, but he chose to show his his patience and his mercy toward them. And then what did God do? 
It says he passed over their sins, those which were previously committed, meaning under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. This word passed over, it does not mean remission of sins. Rather, it means overlook. God overlooked their sins. But it also does not mean look the other way. Rather, this is a delay in God's justice. You understand, when we sin, it places demands on God's justice and righteousness, demands which must be met. Here's the thing, though. In the Old Testament, God forgave people and he accepted people even though the demands of his righteousness and justice had not been met. But see, this is where the tension comes from. God God showed restraint. All these Old Testament believers, they deserved judgment, but God didn't punish their sins with the full justice they deserved. He just let them go. But, But this calls into question God's own holiness, his own justice. How can God do this? Does God really punish sins? Does he really take these offenses against his glory serious? Just letting people go. Let's just use the most prominent Old Testament example. That's King David and his great sins. First, he took Bathsheba in adultery. And then he had her husband killed. So these were obviously huge sins, two crimes that both came with the death penalty in the Old Testament. This was a great injustice. Wouldn't you say? I mean, think about Uriah. That's a great injustice, Bathsheba's husband, right? So what happened to David? Well, God just forgave him. David repented of his sins and God forgave him. Second Samuel 12, 13, God said to David through Nathan, the Lord has taken away your sins. You shall not die. I mean, he just goes free. Again, do you see the problem with this? How can God do that. that. That's not fair. That That's an injustice. David is guilty. He should be punished. But David never paid the full penalty for his sins. God instead just took him away and accepted David. But you understand now that it wasn't until the coming of Christ and his death on the cross that we finally learn what happened to David's sins. And all sin. Where did they go? God took them away as far as the east is from the west, but at the same time, they weren't paid for. So where did they really go when God took away sins? Well, in a manner of speaking, God held on to them in reserve. And then when Christ came in the fullness of time, as he hung on the cross, God took the full reserve of all the sins committed by all of his people, and he poured them out entirely on Christ. That's where they went. Jesus paid for them all on the cross. Jesus died in their place. He was dying for for David's sins and Abraham's sins and Noah's sins and, and all the sins of all of God's people. And as Jesus paid, he was demonstrating, showing, proving God is righteous. God deals with sin and evil, God is just. This is what must happen if any are to go free and be saved. And in addition to the cross, it really shows the, or rather how serious God takes sin. This was the cost. No one actually goes free. Someone's got to pay. There, there's a cost. 
Someone has to satisfy divine justice. This was the cost. That Christ himself, the Son of God, would be sacrificed and separated that you could be reconciled. In other religions, when you offend God's holiness, all you have to do is give some money, say a prayer, do some work, go on pilgrimage. You're good to go. He'll forgive you. He'll take you back. You're good to go. The cost is cheap, which really means God's glory is cheap. If it takes so little to pay for sin, it really just shows that that their God is not that glorious. But what does it say about the God of the Bible where any sin, no matter how small, requires the, the sacrificial death of the Son of God to purchase your forgiveness and to vindicate God's glory? And I hope you realize that's what's going on. I appreciate the connection that John Piper makes here. And going back to David, when David sinned, God confronted David through Nathan the prophet. And you remember what God said to David? He said to him, in light of his sin, why have you despised me? Why have you despised me? David's thinking, I, I, didn't, I didn't do that. I just, yeah, I committed adultery and participated in murder. But what are you talking about? But you realize that's what all sin is. Why have you despised God? Sin in the moment, it's despising God, despising his glory. Again, in sin, you're saying God is not really good. He's he's not glorious. His ways are not best. My ways are best. My glory is worth more. I'm supreme. And now connect the dots. If God did not punish sin and rebellion, what would God be saying? He basically saying, well, yeah, I guess they're right. I guess my glory is not that big of a deal. I, I guess I'm not supreme. I, I guess my ways are not best. You see, if, if God never brought such sin into account, he would not be supreme in glory. He would be despising his own glory if he just let sin go. And so, you see, all sin is a glory issue. Remember back in Romans 1, The wicked, what did they do? They exchanged the glory of God for nothing. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so for God to just let sin go, he would be despising his own glory, agreeing that his own worth is trivial. So that's why we've been saying over and over again, because of sin, God had to do something to demonstrate his righteousness and to vindicate his glory. Now along these lines, keep in mind, God didn't have to save anyone. He could have vindicated his glory entirely by just judging everybody. As we learned in Romans 2, many are judged, and in so doing, God is vindicating his righteousness. He's showing he will not let the defamation of his honor and name and glory stand. He must deal with it, And you know, if God just chose to send everyone to hell, he would be doing nothing wrong. He would merely be upholding his perfect justice and righteousness. All have sinned, all deserve it. He would merely be demonstrating his righteousness. But you see, if God was going to to save anyone, well, then he's going to have to demonstrate that he's still righteous in another way. 
He would have to demonstrate that he can accept guilty sinners and let them go, yet still be righteous in another way. And there was only one other way. And that's where Christ, Christ would come as a willing substitute sacrifice. Jesus is God's glory incarnate, Hebrews 1.3 says. But he died in our place and he bore all of that wrath of God for us. This explains, by the way, that the beginning of verse 25, where it says that God displayed Christ publicly as a propitiation in his blood. Propitiation speaks of the satisfaction or, or the appeasement of divine wrath. The weight of all past sins were, you know, they're kept in reserve and they were building up like water in a dam and, and they're just building pressure. And finally, that dam burst open onto Christ. Yet being the Son of God, he was able to, to swallow it all up and to drink down the cup of God's wrath to the dregs. Jesus made full satisfaction for our sins. He completely satisfied and appeased the justice of God on our behalf. That is how sinners go free. And in so doing, you know, it wouldn't be right to say that Jesus restored the glory of God. It was never lost. But it would be right to say that Jesus demonstrated the glory of God. He proved that God was right and righteous to accept all those Old Testament believers because Jesus died in their place. The, the payment was made. This is the good news. And this good news gets even better because not only did Jesus pay the full weight of past sins on the cross, he was also paying for the full weight of future sins, meaning our sins. This is verse 26. Christ's work was, he says, verse 26, Paul repeats himself, just the emphasis. He says it was, again, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. To those in the past, the Old Testament believer, they were accepted by God on loan, you could say. But when Jesus came, he fully paid their price. He redeemed them, proving that God was just in accepting them. But in addition, though, God proves himself the justifier in accepting believers today because Jesus died in their place too. When God accepts people today and fully forgives them today, lets them go, he is proven a, a just justifier because Jesus already paid for all their sins. And keep in mind, all this applies to whom? He says, to the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. God is a justifier who can completely forgive your sins and accept you. It's a free gift. No works are needed to earn this gift. No religious deeds are required to complete this transaction. Jesus already accomplished the only work that counts. You must simply go to him, confess him as Lord, follow him, trust him alone to save you. You must die to self and your glory. But have no fear because God will raise you up and give you new life. And speaking of resurrection, we can now make a little connection to Easter because the real significance of the empty tomb was the vindication of Christ. If the death of Jesus was the manifestation of God the Father's righteousness, the resurrection 
was the manifestation of Christ's righteousness. In rising from the dead, Jesus was demonstrating or proving that he truly was the Son of God and that he truly paid for all of our sins in full on the cross. Because if Jesus remained in the grave, conquered by death, that would mean he was, he's still paying for our sins. He's dead, he's still paying the, the price. His atonement was incomplete. We would be without hope. But in rising from the dead, he proved his words true when he said, it is finished. And, and the resurrection was the final demonstration of his complete victory over all of our sins. And so now we have nothing but hope. And so we find that the cross plus the empty tomb together, they form the ultimate demonstration of God's righteousness and salvation. Earlier we asked, how can God justly forgive? Well, this is the answer. No one goes free. Someone has to pay. And Jesus came and died to pay in your place that you can justly go free. It just finally makes you wonder, why would God do this? Why do all this? Why save anyone? He could have demonstrated his righteousness by just judging everyone, and it's over. But you see, God, he wanted to demonstrate his righteousness, but he also wanted to demonstrate something else. You know what that was? His love. We'll finish here. Turn to Romans 5, a perfect place to finish. Romans 5. Look at verse 6. Romans 5, 6. He says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, verse 9, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from what? From the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. There's an old hymn we sing. It's called Jesus Paid It All. Most of you, I'm sure, know it. You know the lyrics? Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And I think the reason this song has endured for so long is because it, it really captures all the truth We've seen from Scripture this morning just such a simple way, a way even a child could understand. And it, it really says it all. Jesus paid it all. That's what he was doing. We contributed nothing to this work of salvation. And so, all to him I owe. He purchased us with his blood, so we owe him our very lives. Sin, that's because sin had left a crimson stain. The, the stain of our guilt was so deep, you could wash yourself a million times, it would never come clean. But he, being perfect, washed it white as snow. By his death and resurrection, he enables 
the guilty sinner to go free. This is how God justly forgives and accepts guilty sinners. A lot of people sing this song, but I think the difference between the cultural Christian and the true Christian, they really understand that, that middle point. That because he paid it all, all to him I owe. I owe him everything. They know that, they believe that, and they live that out. Did Jesus really pay it all for you? Again, don't think about anyone else in the room. For you. And if so, you owe him everything. The, the gift is free, but it costs you your life. And the one who believes in him will then live for him, exalt him, make much of him, serve him. You will no longer despise God's glory. You don't want to. You will no longer exchange God's glory, but you see God's glory in Christ, and so you will give him all the glory. You will live now for for his glory because he is supreme, and he demonstrated it on the cross. So does this sound like you? Have you been transformed by a trusting in Christ once for all, saving sacrifice? And I would urge you to, to trust in him today. Turn to him today. Be transformed today. He's the only one who can make you right with your God. And as you, as you turn to him, and for those who have, now just live every day. Think every thought, breathe every breath to his glory. He is he's the precious one. See God's glory in Christ. Take delight in the Son and rejoice in him unto his glory. For Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Let's pray. Our good and gracious God in heaven, we, we do exalt you now, as Paul said, we exalt in the hope of glory because of Christ Jesus, because of this good news. Lord, we, we understand we must reckon with the bad news. We all are guilty, sinners, deserving eternal separation from you. That would be only just. But we thank you, Lord, that you demonstrated both your righteousness and your love in sending your only son, Christ, to come to earth, to live a life as a perfect man, yet to die on the cross, an undeserved death. But he did so, Lord, for us, that our sins might be taken away. As far as the east is from the west, that's where they went. They went on Christ, and he, he swallowed them all up. He satisfied your wrath for us. And now if we would just turn to him in faith, that's all you require, Lord. Our whole lives given to you, we will be saved. Well, Lord, that, that's no cost at all. That, that is our joy for those who know you have been transformed. Lord, I even ask that you would convict those here who may not know you and, and, and show them the hope that's in Christ, that their lives too can be changed. They can find the, the peace, the joy, the hope that's not found in, in health or wealth or anything in this world. It's found only in a, a right relationship with you, reconciliation and salvation. This is what, what life is about. It's about your glory, and it's now only found in Christ. So may we all turn to him with our lives and live for his glory. It's in his name what we pray. Amen.